Hello, fellow viewers and listeners, since this will be a podcast and a video, this is Perspectives. Uh, I am Martina, and this is the wonderful... The sad. Yes, and welcome to our, I guess, kind of our second recording of the mm-hmm. series of proximity to whiteness and uh, identities how how us women of color uh, are defining our different identities and we have our second guest uh with us today um she is a wonderful woman of color um that i've met a few years ago and her name is sydney we will not give out last names here not just yet uh but her name is sydney and we're very happy to have her on today to talk about her experience just being a black woman, being a woman of color in terms of what we're always kind of always talking about on here on Perspectives uh, as it relates to proximity to whiteness and white supremacy. Uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, she's the second guest we have in this series. And so I know Sydney was really interested in kind of hearing from Lissette and I talk about like how this started, like where did, where did Perspective uh, come from? And really, you know, I have to give credit to Lissette. I do because it was her I it was her idea. So 20 years from now, when I'm doing my interior design uh, line and she's doing her hairline, it was yes. Lisette can put that in the contract. Fine. It was her that started it. It's recorded. Right. It was Lisette. It's recorded. It's recorded. So Lisette, tell the people how you came up with this idea. <laughs> yeah. So it really was inspired from conversations that Martine and I had been having. Um, and I had already wanted to do a, a sort of a YouTube channel and things like, I'm an introvert, so this platform really works well for me to get my thoughts out to people uh, better than any other platform. And as we kind of continue getting to know each other and have started having deeper conversation on like racial issues, you know, equity, uh, issues between a woman of color and things like that, one day, once I think that it was maybe a few months into the pandemic, like a month or two into it, um, I just asked Martina, I was like, hey, like I have an idea of starting a YouTube channel. You kind of want to take our conversations that we have on the phone into this platform and just kind of put it out there. And thankfully, she's crazy as I am. <laughs> we ran with it and, and really just wanted to have an opportunity to kind of share our thoughts are you know I think we came with perspectives because we realized you know we're not experts in a lot of things um we're only experts in what we've lived through and what we we know is our truths so we're like it's our perspectives and a lot of different issues and we can give it because a lot of the things that happen around us have been impacting us for a very long time so you know and as we progressed and, and and done that I think it's been Sometimes we'll do a little more research uh, than we did probably in the beginning on some topics uh, in doing that. And I think over the course of now, I think almost like a year and, and change now, um, we we really started thinking about how can we, you know, what's that next step for our channel? What's the next step? And we decided to do podcasts and take our platform to podcasts too so people can, can listen. And, and we know that that's popular uh, as well. Uh, and then we kind of, you know, thought about like, how about we have guests? Like we, we want, we're perspectives. We want to hear other people's perspectives. And, and we knew we wanted to focus on women of color. We knew we wanted to give a platform to women, uh, and, and, and share that knowing that women of color sometimes are not provided platforms to just share their, their stories or truths, um, so we thought, why not do this? Um, and we had been talking about white supremacy for the last few months uh, as well. And, you know, Martina and I talked a lot about, you know, our proximity to whiteness, how that's kind of influ- influenced us and how it's sort of impacted sort of our daily lives. And we're like, I wonder if we share similar things with other women, what have their experience been? Uh, and this is how we came to be, and this is Sydney, why you're kind of here as our, our second guest on this series, because uh, we really wanted to have a deeper conversation uh, with others and, and, and talk through, you know, proximity to whiteness, uh, white supremacy, you know, growing up as a person of color in the United States, because um, it, it, it's different from wherever you are in the United States, it's different. 
you know, it was different for me, it was different for Martina, and I'm sure, Sydney, when you start sharing your story, we'll, we'll see uh, how it was different for you, but there's also those similarities uh, and, and connecting through that. So I think that's uh, a longer version, I think, of what <laughs> Martina said to kind of get through, but uh, that's how we are here. We start off and we go on and we maybe share a little bit more than, than we intend, but always always with a good intention. Yeah, we bring it full circle. Uh, that was great, Lizette. That was a great recap and a great kind of like synopsis of this series. So thank you um, for that. And so, you know, Sydney, we're, we're really just gonna jump in. As you know, Lizette mentioned, right. you know, uh, they hear and see us all the time. Uh, thank you for everyone for following. And we, you know, Lizette and I are definitely women of color, but we want to get different perspectives. And so we're reaching out to various women of color, uh, I mean, really particularly wanted to focus on women uh, in particular, like just because, you know, we need our voices uplifted and need our voices heard and all of us, you know, to talk about, you know, we have a lot of similarities, but we also have a lot of differences and like just start to, you know, speak to one another and engage with, uh, with each other as well. So one thing we're hoping to do is that once we wrap up this series is to bring back as many women as possible who have been a part of the series. They kind of do like a final conversation about, you know, things that you maybe learned about yourself, what you learned about somebody else, similarities, differences, culture, ethnicities, just, you know, have that kind of final wrap up. Uh, but Sydney, I'll turn it over to you and just kick it off and talk a little about your background. So um, I will get started by saying, um, just thank you both for having me, for thinking about me and, um, you know, your willingness to, to hear my story. Um, I will also admit that I had to do a little bit of digging online and just, you know, just to see what um, what the term proximity to whiteness means, um, you know, just to kind of get a starting point. So, um, you know, when I first heard the term, um, my gut reaction it was that, um, you know, this concept or this term meant um, you know, how close you are to whiteness. So like how, you know, how well you blend or how well you can pass, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just um, in, my, in my experience, um, I think taking a look back at my childhood, uh, you know, I can see uh, clearly proximity to whiteness and how this has influenced my life. And you know, I mean, for anybody who's viewing this, you can see that I'm light, lighter skinned. I identify as a black woman. Um, you know, my hair is short right now, but um, for years I wore it very long and straight. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and just, and just going back to what I mentioned about childhood, um, I didn't realize that people were treated differently, maybe until the third grade. Um, so I was born into a family, um, a rainbow family, as my grandmother likes to call it. Uh, we have all different shades and, you know, colors of folks. Um, we've got, you know, white folks married into the family. We've got First Nation blood um, in my family. We've got um, folks who are from India who have married into the family, you know. So having, um, you know, people of all different colors and shades and appearances um, was something that, you know, was common to me growing up. And I realized that that's not everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. But I say all that to say that, you know, in the third grade, um, that was the first time that I realized, um, you know, I guess my proximity to whiteness, if you will. So, um, I grew up in Detroit and went to Detroit public schools. And if you know anything about Detroit, um, you'll know that majority of the population is African American. Mm -hmm. um, still to this day, probably since maybe since the 1967 riots um, after white flight, when folks fled, white folks and others fled to the suburbs. Um, as a result of the riot that took place over building racial tensions, um, particularly between the black and the white residents of the city. Um, so I grew up in Detroit and went to Detroit public schools until the sixth grade. 
And in the third grade um, was when I was starting to be physically bullied um, for my skin color. And this was the first time that I realized I, that I was different, I guess, than you know my, my peers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I say different because appearance-wise, um, my skin color, you know, was lighter than my peers and um, hair texture was different than a lot of my peers. Um, but that was never something that I thought about until um, it was pointed out to me by another classmate. And so, you know, I go home um, at this time and... Uh, the word that had been used um, by the bully was whitey. So I go home and I remember asking my mom, like, hey, you know, this is, this word was used to describe me and I don't understand, you know, why, um, you know, I'm being called this. Like, can you, you know, in a third, whatever a third grader's language is, like, can you help me to understand, right? Because at this time, like your child, you don't ha yet have the language to describe you know what's going on you're still learning about the world you're still learning about yourself and your you know your position in the world if you will your you know what that looks like so you know I'm asking my mom and I think you know my recollection of that discussion was just that she you know kind of echo what my my grandmother has a saying so she echoes what my grandmother says of like you know you're no better and no less than anybody else mm -hmm. and that's that now the bullying goes on third grade passes fourth grade passes fifth grade on to sixth grade um and my parents finally decided to pull us out of Detroit public schools um which at the time, I think had like a 25% um, graduation rate for high school. And so, you know, I use the term um, upward mobility now, which I didn't, again, understand at the time, you know, being a sixth grader. So my parents pulled me out of the school and um, I was put in briefly into a Catholic school for seventh grade where the student population was more diverse. So in my seventh grade class, there were 14 kids, um, including myself. And this was the first time that I had white classmates. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say probably majority of the class was black. Um, we did have a few kids who identified as mixed race, um, but it was, it was the most diverse setting that I have been in, you know, up until this point in school. And, you know, combined with the realization that like, I'm different based on how my peers have seen me. Yeah. Um, and still, still grappling with what, you know, that means and trying to understand myself. So I can remember having a conversation with peers in the seventh grade um, when it came time to talk about like our family history and, you know, how, um, what our, um, what our racial backgrounds were. So now as an adult, I'm understanding that, you know, how you identify and your racial background can actually be two very different things, you know? So right now I say I identify as a black woman, um, but my racial background, you know, my great-grandmother was Canadian citizen, my maternal grandmother is of First Nation descent, you know, and always told us as a kid that, like, you check all the boxes because you, you know, you should be proud to be everything that you are, mm -hmm. and that includes Black. You know, you need to be proud of being everything that you are. Now, I say all that to say that my mom does not identify as a Black woman, and so you can imagine, you know, that, um, the way that race was communicated to me, um, the way that, you know, you're told to identify, um, it's, it was, there was no one single consistent message for me as a child, you know? And so, um, 
I, and I would also add that my dad identifies as a black man. So there was no consistent messaging. Um, I can, you know, recall in going through the standardized testing in elementary school and my mom getting mad at teachers because when we went to go check, you know, multiple boxes for um, how we identify racially, um, we were told, you know, don't do that. You just check black because that's what you are. So I can remember there being, you know, conversations between my mother and the teachers of the school. Um, and so I'm telling you all of this to kind of, you know, um, I, I guess paint a picture of where I'm coming from, how I came to identify, and then what proximity to whiteness means to me. So, um, you know, going back to the seventh grade, um, that was the first, you know, most diverse setting I had been in. And I remember having discussions with classmates, white classmates and my black classmates of, you know, well, this is about the one drop rule. So for those of you that know about the one drop rule, um, which was designed to keep people systematically oppressed, um, you know, based on their African-American heritage, um, we were having a discussion about this one drop rule. And my black classmates are telling me, Sydney, you've got one drop, so you're black, but you know, mm -hmm. you're light skinned. So, you know, you, you can't, there's times where like you'd be kind of pushed away. So there's, you know, that tension between being lighter skinned, but also identifying as black and then being accepted by um, your peers. And then there was that other side of it where I'm telling that my peers, well, why doesn't the one drop rule work the other way? Because here I have, you know, my First Nation grandmother, whose mother was a Canadian citizen when she died, you know, and, um, you know, got all these other people in my, you know, down the line that I know of that are um, of different races. And why can't I identify as one of those things? You know, why do I have to pick just this one thing and check this one box. And so that leads me to, you know, my eighth grade experience um, where my parents, we were still living in Detroit at the time, but um, the schools were too expensive. Um, it was too expensive to keep four girls in private schools. So my mom, you know, made a decision. She didn't want us in Detroit public schools, again, because of everything that we had I would say the, the just the conditions that have been created for years, you know, decades in the making, mm -hmm. right? You got the schools that are underfunded, um, which is no fault of the students, no fault of the parents. You had, um, you know, young pregnancies and, and other th just, you know, things that were happening as a product of the environment. And again, going back to this, these conditions that have been created for decades and have been decades in the making. Um, so she, you know, is adamant that she didn't want us going to Detroit public schools for high school. She wanted us to graduate because that was seen as a way to achieve upward mobility and to not have to keep, um, you know, struggling and just barely, you know, keeping your head above water. So she moved us out to the suburbs. Now, recall that I mentioned, um, you know, the 1967 Detroit riot where um, white flight was a result of that. So in the suburbs of Detroit, um, these are predominantly white communities. Um, I mean, depending on the community, you know, the, the um, economic status of the community varies. Um, but the one that my parents chose to move us into uh, sat right on the border of Southfield, which is a predominantly black city right on the border of Detroit. And Birmingham, which is a predominantly white city on the border of Southfield. So, and, and um, very affluent. Now I'm gonna just add here that my parents, you know, they struggled to, to do this. And there was a lot of other um, challenges that came with moving us out there, including, you know, years of housing instability and all of that stuff. But they moved us out there for this upward mobility. And so I get into the school and now my classmates are all white. 
So you can imagine, you know, I'm just culture shock after culture shock after culture shock. Because, you know, my family, again, this rainbow family, like we never really talked about race. We just, you know, everybody just was what they were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody just looked how they looked. You know, we didn't talk about the fact that like so-and-so's dad is from here or, you know, they have this mom or whatever, you know, they just, we just were what we were. And so going into this um, school, I again started feeling um, like I was different. And this time in eighth grade, you know, nobody really said anything to me. Um, So unlike my third grade experience, nobody said anything to me about, you know, the color of my skin. Um, But it just was very apparent that you're different. You know, your style of dress is different. So you're coming in with, you know, the types of clothes that kids in the city wear. And, you know, you're wearing your hair in multiple braids because that's how your mom has done it for years, you know, and yep. And everybody else has their, you know, wearing their hair straight down their back. It's just very, just very different. And, um, you know, bless their souls. I had a young group of black kids that were in the school at the time, maybe, maybe five kids um, that rallied around me and showed me support and, you know, were willing to embrace me. And so this time my experience being embraced by the black community was different. Um, And, you know, I still felt like the odd person out. I mean, at at 12 and 13 years old, I mean, you can't, you're still trying to figure out, you know, figure yourself out, figure out your look, figure out your place in the world, all of that, figure out your likes, your dislikes, all those types of things. And I can remember I had um, long hair down to like the crook of my elbow. And I wanted to be like the other kids at school. So rather than wear it in the plate, the two plates that my parents would put in my hair this time I one day I decided I was gonna you know wear it down Mm -hmm. and I remember just you know coming into the class and classmates like putting their hands through my hair and I didn't understand why you know I just I was like okay this just something about this just doesn't feel right to me but I can't quite put my finger on it you know and at that point um, I began actually cutting, like, cutting my hair. Um, so, like, I went home and, like, that week ended up, like, cutting off a big, like, portion of my hair. I remember my mom being so upset because that was, like, you know, pride and glory. Like, your hair is all about the hair, you know. And if you know anything about Black culture, hair is a big deal to us. So, you know, I remember her being really, really upset about that. And I didn't quite have the language yet to describe why I felt compelled to cut my hair off. Um, But looking back, I wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted to fit in. Hmm. I wanted to feel like I belonged and not like an outsider. Because, you know, since third grade, I I hadn't quite found my, I felt like I hadn't quite found my place. Um, And I just knew that something was different, you know, and... um, So at this time, um, you know, still didn't quite understand, went into high school, um, was still trying very hard to fit in with my white peers, because again, this is the majority of the school and the school system. Um, And, you know, you want to get invited to the parties and like you want to be included and um, everything else. So I will start by saying that you know, when I first heard this term proximity to whiteness, to me, I first thought of, the first thing that I thought of was security and what I had tried to do in order to fit in Mm -hmm. um, coming into this white world. Now, mind you, I mean, the Detroit was still this, I mean, all of it still this white world because we got, Mm -hmm. you know, in the U.S., the systemic racism is at the root of everything. So, Um, I began straightening my hair and I remember my mom again, you know, getting upset with my sisters and I 
like, why are y'all straightening your hair? You're going to ruin your hair. Like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you so obsessed with having it like pinned straight? And my sister and I was staying in the bathroom for hours, you know, just trying to get this like pinned straight look. Right. And like, you know, our hair wasn't really, it wasn't really trying to have all that, but <laughs> we tried it. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. We tried it regardless. (laughs) Yep. And so, you know, we tried on the different, we tried on the different styles. Um, So at this time, I remember my sister got really into pop culture and she was a year, like a year and a half younger than me. And she started listening to like alternative rock. And you know, I thought she was cool. She always knew her music and her pop culture and stuff. So this is my little sister. So, you know, of course I'm like, okay, we gonna, we're going to the same school. Like we're going to both have our hair straight and we're both going to have this alternative look, you know? So we're trying to, trying to dress like them and, you mm-hmm. know, talk like them and everything else. Um, which brings me to, you know, recollection, um, I can remember being embarrassed about my dad coming to school because there was no denying that this man was from the streets Mm. of Detroit. You know, the way he talked, the way he walked, the way he, just his whole essence. There's no denying that he was not from there. Um, And so, you know, when I think back to my experience in high school and just trying to find my place, I would say to me that proximity to whiteness meant passing, it meant being included, it meant fitting in, it meant straightening my hair if that's what I had to do, it meant changing the way that I talked because, you know, I worked I worked so hard to drop a lot of the 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 slang, if you will, or whatever you know, whatever people want to call it, for how my parents and I talked and how my family, you know, how my family and my peers had talked in Detroit. Um, And I was just trying my best. And, you know, my mom would make comments of like, you know, why are you trying to look like that? Like, you look like you're trying to be white. And why are you trying to do this? You know, and I think, um, you know, thinking back to that, um, my mom had, both my parents had grown up in Detroit. Um, My mom was used to being in spaces where she might be the only Black person. Um, you know, and it doesn't, I think it doesn't really matter how you identify, it matters how society identifies you at the end of the day, um, for how you're treated. Not to say that it doesn't matter for how you identify, for how you you choose to move through the world, but it matters in terms of how others, you know, choose to interact with you. Um, Unfortunately, you know, this is the way of the world here. Um, but this is why we're having this conversation because we don't, you know, there needs to be change. We need to keep, you know, talking about these things. Right. So she, you know, had been used to being, you know, going and, and being in these corporate spaces that were typically, um, you know, predominantly white male. There might be a few um, white women, mm-hmm. but um, she was used to being in spaces like that. And, you know, she put on a really hard exterior because that's what she had to do to take care of her family. And she put on, you know, a really thick skin. And I think it was difficult for her to understand what it was like as a child to have come, to have, you know, been in so many different spaces and you're just constantly trying to find your place. Um, The message of what you are hasn't been consistent. I don't think colorism was really a conversation um, in the 70s when she was coming up. Um, So this was never like a straightforward conversation that we had. So I say colorism now because I have the language to talk about it. Um, So now I understand that my experience growing up in Detroit was due to colorism. You know, we've been, we've been pitted against one another. you know, almost every place that has been colonized deals with colorism in some shape, form, or another. Um, and, you know, the fact that some people are treated, um, have more um, privileges based on, you know, having lighter skin or more Eurocentric features or, you know, straighter hair, um, it's real. Yeah. 
And I can acknowledge now that I have privilege and I can acknowledge now that, you know, it was hard for, although it was hard for me to move from one of these spaces to another and to try to fit in, you know, really trying to fit in with my white peers, um, it was probably much easier for me to do that than, you know, somebody who doesn't, maybe doesn't look like me. Yeah. Um, so that brings me to college. Um, you know, still didn't have the language to describe what was going on, didn't understand, you know, the, what proximity, probably didn't understand, you know, what proximity to whiteness meant to me other than like, this is security. This is my way out. This is my way up. Like if I want to be, you know, I looked around at my white peers who seemed to have things so easy mm -hmm. compared to what I came from. You know, I was working in high school to help my parents support the household. Um, so at 16 years old, I was buying my own school supplies. I was putting my own clothes on my back. You know, my parents did the best that they could. Um, but I, you know, I just saw that things, they just seemed to be so much easier. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to like go and live this like carefree life, you know, um, and not have to feel like an adult before my time not have to, um, you know, have cares in the world. <laughs> like, that's that, that's kind of what I felt like my white peers had. And I'm like, that's I want to That's kind of true. I mean, yeah. I'm trying not to interject while you talk. No, no, no. I mean, feel free to interject. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I want a piece of that and I'll do whatever I have to do to fit in there. You know, I'll straighten my hair and I'll talk a certain way. And, um, you know, this is... I I also want to say, I know I had mentioned that I was going to go on to like college stuff, but I, I another thought occurred to me. So I was fortunate to have Black friends in high school. And I thank God that um, I had others who could be, you know, there with me. So it wasn't just me. Um, and when I went on to college, um, again, very different. So I went to college in Dearborn, um, Michigan, which if you know anything about Dearborn, um, it's very racially and ethnically diverse, but people refer to it as the Arab American capital of the United States. Wow. Yes. Oh. So um, I think next to English, um, Arabic is the most common language spoken. Um, so going to Dearborn, very similar situation where there was a handful of black students, um, mostly white students, and then the, the second majority to the white students were the Arab American students. Um, and then, you know, back, back to the handful of black students. So um, this again was like another culture shock, but I felt like, you know, more prepared. I was like, I'm more prepared this time. Like I've already been, you know, I've already been in environments where I'm like, okay, my bearings. yeah, I'm looking around. There's just a few of us here. I'm like, we can do, you know, I can do this this time. So I was still, I was still struggling. I want to mention too, through high school and throughout college, I was still struggling with how I chose to identify. So, you know, my mom was still very adamant about not identifying as a black woman and embracing, you know, everything that you are. Um, my grandmother is, you know, says very much the same thing, but her approach is like, you know, if you choose to identify as black, be proud. You know, if you choose to identify as First Nation, fine, be proud. You know, you choose to identify as white, fine, be proud. You are no better and no less than any any other human being, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I, still struggling with identity at this point, still trying to fit in with white peers, ended up joining a white sorority. Um, and I can tell you that that didn't, <laughs> that didn't last very long. That maybe lasted two out of four years of my um, college experience. I did make it on to leadership. Um, but just, 
Yes, but just the number of microaggressions, which again, I didn't have the language to describe at this time, mm -hmm. um, was difficult for me to navigate. So at this time, there were three people of color in the sorority. Um, one woman was Puerto Rican, and then there were my cousin, my, there was my cousin and myself. So my cousin looks very much like me um, in appearance, and then there was myself. And um, you know, I thought at this time, okay, I've made it, like I've mastered it, like I've been able to straighten my hair, like I got the top down, you know, I got the lingo down, like nobody's gonna question me, right? So I get in there and you know, I'm hanging out with my cousin and and her name is Delia Nice, um, the uh the other woman in the sorority. And there's this woman that would come up to the three of us when we were together and say things like, oh, it's Destiny's Child, or, oh, you got those dick-sucking lips, like, excuse my language, you know, just, just all type of things like that. Or like, you know, calling out the fact, I remember I um, had cut my hair really short and I wasn't liking the way it looked. So I asked my dad if he would help me get a sew-in. This was my first time getting a sew-in. And um, despite the fact that the woman who, you know, the woman who was making the microaggressions also had a sew-in, she thought it would be fun to just like keep pointing out the fact that I had a sew-in and oh, you know, like, oh, this black woman has a sew-in, like, isn't that great? Let's all call attention to it. Let's all crowd around and look at it. You know, I remember us being on a scavenger hunt in the mall for the sorority and everybody crowding around to look at my sewing. So this, you know, this kind of brought up the memories from eighth grade where I'm like, wait a minute, something doesn't feel right. <laughs> Why do I feel so uncomfortable all the time? You know, this isn't right. Um, and, you know, I really... I, I tried having, I had conversations with my grandmother after this. I had conversations with my mom. My mom's response was, well, this is, just doesn't sound right for you. Like, you know, maybe you need to rethink your decision and membership. Um, you know, my grandma just echoed the same thing she always says of you're no better or no less than, you know. But when you're crying yourself to sleep at night and not understanding why, you know, you don't feel great, um, you're no better, you're no less than isn't, you know, doesn't feel like much of an explanation. Right. What's happening. Um, so I get to grad school and I ended up signing up for a summer program. And the summer program was geared towards minority students. Um, it was a pre-matriculation program, and I believe this university is designated as a Latinx-serving institution. I could be wrong, um, but they have made it their, in other words, they have made it their mission to ensure that their minority students don't fall behind because, you know, retention rates um, for minority students compared to white students in higher education look very different. Amen. So, you know, in coming out of Detroit public schools, um, I have been, you know, I was never strong in math. Um, I have been two years actually behind my white classmates in math um, when I got to the, um, you know, middle school and the high school and ended up having to take summer classes. So. Um, I did this pre-matriculation class to prepare me for my master's program. And we had a lot of conversations about race and society. Uh, and this was the first time that I started to get some answers. Um, so I had, you know, not even known that I had questions, have been struggling with my identity for a long time. Um, you know, in hindsight, I kind of envied my dad because, you know, he knew, he knew who he was. He was a black man and he knew what that meant for him in society, but he also knew what that meant for him for, you know, for him. Um, and so we, we talked about race and society and, 
you know, the friends that I made in this group, um, a lot of them actually came in with this language. A lot of them had, um, you know, backgrounds in advocacy and, um, you know, things like grassroots organizing for their communities. And um, they had the language to talk about some of the stuff that I was experiencing um, and some of the, the stuff that I was struggling with. So, um, you know, at this time I was still straightening my hair and still, you know, trying to do everything I could to just be safe um, with this proximity to whiteness thing, safety, you know, upward mobility, opportunities. Um, and I ended up, you know, completing that program. And I will say that some of the, some of the folks from that program are still my very best friends to this day. Um, I went on to take health, a health disparities track um, for my master's of public health degree and actually end up, ended up reading a couple of books. And one of them was Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. Absolutely recommend reading this, um, but will disclaimer, like, you know, have, it, it, it might upset your stomach or yeah, your mind. So just, yeah. So if you decide to read it, just make sure you take care of yourself um, while you're reading. But I ended up reading that book. And in that book, she talks a little bit about how um, when chattel slavery was still operational in the US, um, scientifically, we tried to define African-Americans as another species. And, you know, that didn't work because here you had white men having, having babies, you know, with the slaves and you got these children coming out of all different shades and with all different features. Mm -hmm. And so they're fine, you know, they're, they're getting scared at this point of like, well, we can, you know, we can interbreed, like, what does that mean for us? You know, we got to protect ourselves kind of thing. And so, you know, that led to being put in caste systems essentially based on our skin color and, you know, the birth of colorism um, here in the United States um, where, you know, you might have, uh, as, you know, as I was commonly told growing up, you will be in the house and I'll be in the field. So, you know, what are you doing? You know, kind of thing where lighter skin folks are, you know, gifted with more privilege. Those with more, your more Eurocentric features are gifted with more privilege um, compared to your darker skin folks and, you know, with less Eurocentric features. And we have a, I will say that in some parts of our culture, and it's not just black culture um, in the United States, you know, based on what I'm told. Um, but we have we have allowed color colorism to persist. We have allowed um, you know this to divide us. And when I think back to my own experience, you know, of just trying to fit in and not knowing any better, and not knowing that you know, me feeling like I have to straighten my hair or me feeling like I have to talk a certain way was perpetuating anti-Blackness. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that with a lot of, sorry, I say that with a lot of sorrow in my heart because um, just, you know, it took a lot to, it took a lot to, um, to get to that understanding and I can probably say now that I that I identify happily and proudly as a black woman and I don't feel like I have to you know um it's an act of rebellion to be who you are to be who you truly are with no regret you know, so today I don't straighten my hair unless I feel like it and unless it's for me. And 
you know, the whole code switching thing. I just started a new job three days ago and I have not thought once about, you know, how I need to correct, you know, enunciations or any of that because I'm like, you know, I'm gonna be in spaces where I'm wanted and where they're gonna include me. And if that space is not for me, then it's an act of rebellion to not, you know, to choose to not be a part of that. Um, so the organization that I just joined, they have actually a couple of um, different groups, but one of them is for the Black and, Af the Black and African diaspora. And they actually have, um, mentorship and you know peer to peer, they encourage like peer-to-peer -peer, um, connection and collaboration and all of these things um and so excuse me I will say that I have already reached out to them to be a part of that um something that I started at my last job was um really making an effort to open doors for other people of color. Um, you know, whether they be brown or red or purple or what have you, um, because I recognize that, you know, systemic racism is alive and real and it still persists in our institutions. And the only way we're gonna change that is to change the people who are in, you know, our positions and ultimately the people who are making the rules. So um, something that I had started with my last job um, was a formal uh, mentorship, formal research mentorship program. And the co-lead and I for that program, who is actually um, a refugee, she came to the country as a refugee, Syri Syrian refugee, I, I believe. And I hope I'm not misspeaking on this, um, on her ancestry, but she came to, the country with her parents as a refugee, um, as a child. And one of the goals that we outlined, you know, as part of our mission was to intentionally, in, you know, involve students of color and to make sure that students of color had, you know, ability to be um, introduced to research. Um, had ability to be introduced to, you know, different opportunities that are going to open these doors. And, um, you know, I no longer feel, as a recap, I no longer feel that um, proximity to whiteness is a saving grace, is a security. Um, I can recognize that it has come with burden, but also it has come with great privilege. And so, you know, I say all that to say that, you know, I'm out loud and I'm proud and um, we gotta, we have to start, we have to start working together. No matter what shape we are, no matter what creed we are, we have to start working together. Um, so that was my story on my proximity to whiteness. And, um, oh, one more thing. I. <laughs> <laughs> thought about. Um, so I am engaged to a white man and one of the first, but actually on our second date, um, the, one of the very first conversations that we had was about white privilege. So um, we will be, you know, if there are kids, they will know where they come from and they will be proud. Sydney, that that was actually a, a, a beautiful story. Actually, um, you know, I know you in a, 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 a this life and a prior life, and I've heard bits and pieces of it. And it was thank you for sharing that, and appreciate you getting you know really emotional about it because this is this is heavy stuff. This is heavy and emotional, especially to share your story with other people. And so I just want to thank you for doing that. And we're actually going to get ready to wrap up this video and go to the second one where we'll have more of a discussion. Because Lisette, I saw you over there. I think you were writing stuff down. I'm sure you got it. It was. Questions and feedback. Um, you know me. Yes, I, I know you. I saw, I saw you looking down. Um, 
but you know, before we wrap up and kind of transition to more of the conversation, mm-hmm. uh, Lisette, please feel free to add anything you would like to say. No, I think there, as Martina mentioned, I was, I had to get my little notebook that I always have at my desk. Um, there was just key words that you kind of kind of said and wanted to make sure that I, I, I dug in with you on some of those words that you said and things of that. But I think, you know, I'll iterate, reiterate, just thank you for sharing. Um, Martina and I both know how hard it is sometimes to put yourself out there and, 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 and be vulnerable. Uh, uh, and especially in such a what is a public space uh, so thank you Sydney for for being that that, that person and, and being open uh, with us and those that will watch and listen as well because I think there are so many things that you you mentioned that I think Martina and I have talked about I've talked about with like others and and even just experiences that I think just run through you know just different races and sort of particularly when you're a person of color there's just things that I was like yeah that that I, I felt that and I know how that felt and I was you know and I think that that uh proximity to whiteness and and just the the, the security that it kind of that false security really that kind of comes with it uh and but you seek it because it's it's what's sort of there so when you talked a lot about that and it was something that you said quite a few times uh, and I was like, yes, that, that is something that you get. So uh, I think as we dig in in the next part of, of this series with you, Sydney, uh, I think we'll, we'll definitely be able to dig into that white proximity and, and talk through just the impact it had uh, you as a, as a child, high school and everything, and just kind of dig into that. So definitely looking forward to the second part of of, of this interview uh, with you, because I think uh, a lot of people are are going to resonate with I think just a lot of things that that you mentioned and that we'll kind of dig into, um, particularly when we talk about more of like the structural and education and how that all kind of also impacted you and and and, and the culture clash uh, that a lot of us go through because sometimes we're in a bubble for a very long time and you step into whether it's a more affluent neighborhood or you go to college and you're like what is this world like this isn't like my bubble anymore uh and and I think there's just like said yeah I did write a few things but uh I'll uh take it back to you Martina well again yes uh Sydney thank you thank you and uh stick around viewers and listeners uh we will be right back with part two of really talking more with Sydney. So bye-bye.